We're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 to 33. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Do not mean your conscience, but his for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you all. I don't normally preach in a sport coat, but I wore this for a certain reason, because about 25 years ago, I was in Edinburgh, and um, my family is from Scotland. My dad's side of the family is from Scotland. And so about 25 years ago, I was in Edinburgh. I went and found uh, an authentic kilt maker. And I went to him, this, this shop, and it was this older gentleman. He's probably in his 80s. And I went in there, and, and, and it, I mean, it just had that smell, right? That like, I mean, it just smelled great, sort of leather and musty. It smelled so good. I went in, and I said, you know, my father's side of the family, Flint, is from Scotland, and I want to find out what our tartan is. And he said, okay. And he goes back in the back, and he comes out, and he has this giant leather book, huge leather book. And he kind of puts it down on the table, and he opens it up, and he flips, and he's like, what's your name, Flint? How do you spell it? F-L-Y, probably was with an I at one point, N-T. He goes, okay. And he looks, and he kind of puts his hand down, and he looks at me. He goes, what was your name again? Flint. And he slams the book shut and goes, you're a tweed-wearing Lowland Scott, and turns around and walks off. And I'm standing there like, I have no idea what is going on. I don't know what that means. I don't know anything. So I, I go back to my friend, and I tell him what happened, and he goes, oh, yeah, that's not good. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, yeah, the... The lowlands are where all the criminals were hung out. So I went and did some research. And um, sure enough, at, at one point, our family was legitimate. And then they got into the horse trade. And uh, they were taking other people's horses and got caught and got sent into the lowlands. And then our family on the United States, when they went to the United States, were in Georgia. If you don't know much about Georgia, that's where you all sent all the criminals from the lowlands. Uh, and so... Uh, I guess I'm not really allowed to wear a tartan or a kilt. I just get to be a, a tweed-wearing lowland Scott. So I hope you won't hold that against me this morning. Um, 
I, I remember, as I said to Athel earlier, I remember being here a few years ago when you all were talking about this, this place and looking at this place and asking the Lord if he would give you this place and um, facing all kinds of choices and all kinds of decisions. And I remember uh, all the conversations, all the discussions, all the negotiations, all the, all the factors that would go into being in a place like this. And now these three, four years later, here you all are in this place. And the, and the question I want to ask today is, so what's next? What's the next thing? Because 11 years ago, the, the next thing was, Lord, would you maybe plant a church in Leith? And then three or four years ago was, Lord, would, would this building be the next thing? And what can often happen is when you plant a church and you begin to grow like you all have grown, and then you get a building and you get into a building, you can sort of think you've arrived, like you've crossed the finish line, like, okay, we've made it. But I'm here to tell you, this isn't the finish line. This is just another step along the journey of what God has for you. And so I think it is really an appropriate time as we celebrate and look back and celebrate all that God has done, but, but also to remember that the windshield is much bigger than the rearview mirror. And what the Lord has in the coming days, what's next in the coming days and months and years is more than any of us could ever hope, dream, or imagine. And that's true, not just for us as a church, but that's true for us individually. Because I bet if we went around right now to every person in this room, there's some choice. There's something that you're facing and you're trying to decide, is this the next thing that I should do? Like, is this the next job I should take? Is this the next relationship I should get into? Should we move houses? Should we have more children? Whatever the next thing is. And, and when you do that, you're not just making a decision. In fact, scientists have discovered, I have no idea how they've discovered this, but people far smarter than me have discovered that, that we make around 35,000 decisions a day. Think about that. 35,000, that's, that's like a decision almost every other second. And some of those are, are very, very conscious. And some of them, we have, we have no idea that we're even making them. Like I remember a few weeks ago, I was in my car, it was late at night. And all of a sudden I hear the brakes squealing behind me and a car skidding behind me. And before I could even realize what I was doing, I just turned to the left instinctively. I made a decision. So some choices we make consciously and some of them we make without thinking much about it. But if you think, how do you make a decision? Why are the choices that you make the choices that you make? What are the factors that go into the choices that you make. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you're not just making choices. What you're really saying is, Lord, I want to discern where your Holy Spirit is leading me. That we're not just making decisions, we're discerning the leading of the Lord. And it is so critical and it is so important. And if we had time, we would go through all of the reasons why it's hard to do that and, and why it's vitally important to do that. But today, I want to look at one factor in our discernment of where the Lord would lead you next, lead, lead you as a church next, but also as you face discernment in your own life and you would say, Lord, where do you have me going? 
How would you do that? And so we're going to look at this passage that was just read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I just want to walk our way through it. And so if you've got a Bible, open back up to that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to start back in verse 23. Now, Paul is just planted, he's planted a church. He was there as the pastor for about a year and a half. And then he's left. And now he's looking back to the church in Corinth. And he's writing to them because Corinth as a city is not a Christian city. It's as far from a Christian city as you can get. And the church has been put down in the middle of it and they're struggling and they're wrestling through how do, how do we live out our faith? What do we do as a church in the middle of this broader context, in the middle of this in, incredible, great global city at the time? What does it look like for us to live out our faith? And so Paul writes back and, and here's where he writes to a particular situation that they're trying to make a decision about. He says, all things are lawful but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, when Paul says, I don't, I don't know about in your Bible, but in mine, if you look and where he says, all things are lawful, that's in quotes. And what Paul is doing, Paul is not saying all things are lawful. He's not saying you can do anything you want. They've legalized it, so go ahead and do it. That's not what he's saying. It's actually, it was a popular saying in the city at that time. And so what Paul is doing is he's kind of grabbing one of their popular sayings and he's bringing it up here. It's as if he were to say, you, you hear everybody saying today, all things are lawful. But then he says, okay, so all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And so what he's saying is, yes, you're, you're free. Like Paul, who wrote Galatians 5.1, is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So yes, in Christ, you are free. But just because you're free doesn't mean that you should do anything and everything that you're free to do. Just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. Because he says, is it, is it helpful? Great, it's free, but, but there's a better question to ask. Is it helpful? Or all things are lawful, but does it build people up? And then he says, let no one seek his own good. Meaning, it's not about you. <laughs> it's not about me. That's a, that's a self-centered way of thinking. Like I'm free and I can do what I want. Therefore, I don't take anybody else into consideration. So don't seek your own good, but the good of his neighbors. Be other centered in this thing. Now, he's going to give three situations. He's going to kind of give three examples to play out this idea of all things are lawful, but are they helpful? Do they build up? Are they loving to other people? So verse 25, he says, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market. Now, here's, here's the situation. That, that sounds really simple. Like, why is, why is he even talking about meat in the meat market? But the thing that was going on in Corinth was they had all of these, these pagan temples all over the place. And when they would go to worship, they would sacrifice animals. So they would go, they would raise these animals, buy these animals. They would go in and they would sacrifice it, say, to the god Pan. 
And then when they were done with with this sacrificial worship, they would take the meat that had been sacrificed and they would go over to the meat market and they would sell it to the butcher. And then the butcher would sell it so that people would eat it so it wouldn't go to waste. And so what Paul says is, eat eat whatever's sold in the market. He said, if you just find it in the market, it's okay. Eat whatever's sold in the market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For, now here's his reason. Listen, this is so interesting. He says, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's, he's quoting Psalm 24, 1, Psalm 50, verse 12, Exodus 9, Exodus 19, 5, Job 41. That, that little phrase, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What he's saying is, go ahead. If you find some meat in the meat market, go ahead, buy it, eat it, because God made it. Go ahead and enjoy it. The earth, everything in the earth, it's the Lord's, everything. So go ahead. Enjoy that thing. So then he gets to the second situation in verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So he says, okay, so here's the second situation. First one is you're wandering through the market. You see some meat. Go ahead, buy it. You aren't violating your conscience. The Lord made all meat. It's great. Eat it all. He says, if you show up to a friend's house and your friend isn't a believer and they serve a dinner in front of you and there's some meat there and nobody says anything, he says, go ahead, eat it. It's fine. You're not, you're not gonna, you don't need to raise up questions like, okay, so where did this meat come from before it was in the market? Was it sacrificed? And that's just, if they lay it for you and they don't say anything, go ahead. You're free to eat that thing. Now, what's so interesting in this part is when Paul says, eat whatever is set before you, he sounds almost exactly like Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse eight. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is about to send out the disciples, the 72. And he sends them out two by two and he says, go into town. And he says, whenever you get there, wherever you, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat whatever is set before you. So Paul sounds a whole lot like Jesus does. So then in verse 28, he gives the third situation. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. So, okay, the first situation, you're walking through the market, you see some meat, nobody says anything, go ahead, buy it, enjoy it. The Lord made it all, it's great. The second situation, you show up to a friend's house and they aren't believers and they have some meat there and they don't say anything, no need, just go ahead, enjoy it, eat it. He says, if you show up at somebody's house and all of a sudden they tell you, hey, we were just over at the pagan temple. We sacrificed this to Pan in our worship and now we'd love to eat it. He says, in that case, don't eat it. For, now look, listen to this. Here's his reason. Someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of, of conscience. That's the third time he's brought up conscience, right? And most of the time when we say, well, I'm not going to do something for the sake of conscience. And we're, we're often quoting, maybe we don't even realize we're quoting first Corinthians 10 here, but look what Paul says next. 
He says, for the sake of the one who informed you, for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. Often we'll claim not to do something based on our own conscience. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. It's for their conscience. And, and the thing is, at, there is a time and a place where it is good and right and appropriate to act counterculturally. What, it, what he's saying is, in, in terms of sort of living evangelistically, when we live and look like everybody else does everywhere all the time, then we don't offer a different view of who Christ is. And so he says, there's a time and a place to look and act different than other people and do it not, not based on your own conscience, but do it for the sake of their conscience. Do it so that when they look at you, they would go, there's something, they actually take their faith seriously. I don't believe what they believe, but they're willing to stick to their guns. They're willing to, to follow through on their own faith. Then Paul raises this incredible question. He says, for why should my liberty? It's, all, it's almost as if he can hear them pushing back when he writes the letter, right? Because he says, listen, don't do it for the sake of their conscience. And then he goes, okay, so why should my liberty be determined by somebody else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced for that which I give thanks, right? Because maybe, maybe even as I was reading this, you're sitting there thinking like, so why does somebody else get to determine what I do and don't do? Right? That, and that's what Paul is raising the question. It's a great question. If I'm free and it doesn't really mean anything to me, even if I know where it came from, even if I know why it was used, if it doesn't mean anything to me, why do I have to hold back? Let's skip verse 31. We're going to come back to verse 31. But thir verse 32, he says, here's why. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. He's saying that the reason that we don't act on all of our freedoms is for the sake of other people. And it's for the sake to the end that they would come to know that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. The reason that we sort of bind our own freedoms is that the hope and the desire is that it will be a witness to somebody else, that it will give the opportunity to point to Jesus. We want them to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so if you step back and go, okay, so Paul's trying to write this sort of, here's how you make a decision in this situation. And he, he's asking, is it, is it helpful? Does it build up? Is it, is it good? You look at the context that's going on, the situation that's going on. You're talking about evangelism. And in the middle of that situation, you're thinking, okay, 
That's a lot to remember when I'm trying to make a decision or I'm trying to discern. Okay, I'm, I'm facing this choice in my life. Do I move? Do I have another kid? Do I take this job? What do I, you know, and then I'm going, okay, okay, does it, is it helpful? Does it build up? Uh, is it good for my neighbor? Am I acting self-centeredly or not? Um, are there different situations in which I'm trying to exercise my own freedom more than I should? And am I acting evangelistic? You know, that's a lot. Honestly, isn't that a lot? You're thinking that's a lot to go through. So it's why I love that Paul writes verse 31. It's it's like a summary statement. So Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, right? So Paul's like, I'm not just talking about food here. I know that's the example. So whatever you eat or drink or or whatever you do, and, and whatever means whatever, That's not a special Greek word. It just means whatever. So uh, whatever you encounter in your life, do it all. Not some, all of it. And not sometimes, but all the time. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you're going to endure, whatever you're going to encounter, do it all to the glory of God. The the next thing I should do is the most God-glorifying thing I can do. The next thing I should do is the most God-glorifying thing that I can do. Now, the, the question should be, if the glory of God is the thing that is sort of the litmus test, it is the reason why we do everything else that we do, The question should be, then what's the glory of God? And the glory of God is like, it's like the weightiness of God. You take all, like all God's loving, knowing, power, sovereignty, all the things of God, all the attributes of God, and you were to sum them all up and weigh them out. It would be the weightiness of all of that. It would be the fullness of God bringing all of his essence, all of his being, all of his action to bear. That's the, that's the glory of God. And the glory of God, it's the manifest presence of God's holiness. I mean, we just, in one of the songs that we sang, it said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. That's a, that's a quote from Isaiah 6, 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The earth will be filled with his glory. The glory of God is the, it's the manifest presence. It's the full presence of God and who he is and his holiness. And the glory of God is the power of God. A few weeks ago at our church, we were, we were doing baptisms. We were talking about baptism and we were looking at Romans chapter six. And as one of our pastors was preaching on it, he, he read this, and it wasn't sort of the point of the text, but it caught, it caught my, my ear when he read this. And he said this. It says this in Romans 6, 4. Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Did you hear that? It, it was God's glory that raised Christ from the dead. That, that's power. 
That means his glory is so powerful, it can resurrect the dead. Or if you go to the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, 23, he's talking about the new heaven and the new earth. And John writes this, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. That eternity, eternity might have a sun, it might have a moon, it might have stars. It just doesn't need them because the glory of God is the thing that is going to keep it lit and keep it living forever. That's power. You think about the glory of God raises the dead and it keeps eternity living forever. That's power. And that's why the glory of God is the thing that we look to when we're trying to decide, Lord, is this the next thing you want for us to do? Because there's nothing greater than the glory of God. And so give yourself to the greatest thing there is in everything that you can. Why aim at something lesser than the greatest thing? So as a church, aim for the glory of God. In your life, aim for the glory of God. In your job, aim for the glory of God. In your retirement, aim for the glory of God. We aim for the glory of God because it's what Jesus was all about. I mean, Jesus spent his life saying, Father, not me, but you. Not my glory, but your glory. And as followers of Jesus, let's be about the thing that Jesus was about. And there's a little warning in this too. Jesus in John 8, 54 says this, if I glorify myself, now listen, if there was ever somebody who could glorify himself, can we agree it would be Jesus, right? And Jesus says, if I glorify myself, I am nothing. I'm nothing. There's a, there's a story in Acts chapter 12 and it talks about Herod, not, it's a different Herod than the Herod in Jesus's life, but it says this, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, meaning the Herod, Herod down because, now listen to why God strikes Herod down. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. I don't, you ever read that? You ever read the little detail that he was eaten by worms in there? So there's a warning for us to not be, don't be about things other than the glory of God ultimately. And if God's glory is so powerful that it can raise the dead and light eternity, then don't settle for living in our own power. Settle Settle, set our mind on our lives, on our hearts, on our focus, on our attention, on the thing that is the most powerful thing there is. And so the next thing I should do is the most God glorifying thing I can do. Maybe think, maybe think about it this way in a question. Here's a, maybe it's easier to ask a question. So ask yourself this, is, is blank the most God-glorifying thing I can do next. So whenever you're facing a choice, whenever you're facing a decision, in light of 1 Corinthians 10.31, ask yourself, is, 
is blank, is taking this job the most God-glorifying thing I can do next? Maybe it is. It is dating that guy or dating that girl the most God-glorifying thing I can do next? Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Should I buy this house? Should I move to this neighborhood? Is that the most God-glorifying thing that I can do next? I remember our family, this was years ago, probably about 10 years ago, our family was uh, in, on holiday and vacation up in Maine, which is in the northeast of the United States. And we were up there driving down this road, this paved road, and I kind of looked off and there was a dirt road that went back into the woods. And up against this tree was a big plywood sign that was nailed up to the tree. And it looked like somebody had taken paint and written on this, this big sign. And it said, pick your rut, you're going to be in it a while. And it had all these different tire ruts going down this old dirt road. And I thought, that's good advice for that road. That's good advice for our life. Because there are decisions not that they can't be undone, but there are decisions that we make. And you've made them, haven't you? Where you look back and you thought, I wish I had started this differently way back then. Like this has been hard emotionally, hard relationally, or hard financially to get out of that thing. And had I just made a decision back at the beginning of this road that I was going down, things would have turned out differently. And this is one of those decisions. This is one of those good rut-picking decisions. Is blank the most God-glorifying thing I can do next? Now, as we wrap up, I just want to share some good news with you in all of this. And the first one is this. If this seems hard, you're not alone. It's, it's simple, Right? Is this the most God-glorifying thing I can do? That's not complicated. It's simple. It just doesn't mean that it's easy to do. But the good, the good news is you've got a family at a church like this that would love to walk alongside of you as you make those kinds of decisions. They would love to come alongside of you and say, okay, I know you're trying to make the most God-glorifying decision in this relationship or in this business deal or in your retirement or in your sports or whatever you're going to do. I would love to help you in that. And so you have a group of people, a family that would love to walk alongside of you as you make that kind of decision. And if you don't know what to do, Seeking God's glory in the next thing is itself God glorifying and doing the next thing you should do, right? If you, if you get to that point and you're like, I don't know, God, I don't know what to do. The most God glorifying, the next thing you should do is to simply go, God, what would be the most God glorifying thing I could do? What would honor you the most in this situation? And when you do that, you are doing the most God glorifying thing you can do next. And if it feels like God has just gone silent, you know what I mean? Where, you, where you're, you're, you're praying and you're asking, you're going, okay, God, I want to do the next most God glorifying thing I can do. And it just feels like it goes quiet. Have you ever been there? No, God talks to you audibly all the time. Good for you. Cause he doesn't for me. I find myself in that place all the time, but here's the good news. 
The good news is that his silence doesn't equal absence. God promised, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Which means even when it is quiet in those times of discernment, God is still at work and God is still present with you. And when you don't know what to do, God knows what to do. And when you don't know what to do, God is still faithful. And when you don't know what to do, God is still sovereign. And when you don't know what to do, God is still for you and God is still with you. And when you don't live for the glory of God, there's grace enough for that. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's why Jesus lived a perfect life. He lived the life we should have lived to the glory of God. He lived it perfectly on our behalf for us. His active obedience in living for the glory of God. And when he died, he died for us and in our place for the times when we don't live for the glory of God. Sin is falling short of the glory of God. And he died in our place, on our behalf, that we might be forgiven. And he rose from the dead and triumphed over that sin. And he said, now, if you believe and you trust and you confess that I am your Lord and Savior, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And then finally, when you choose to do God's glory, he maximizes your joy. I know you can often think, well, if I... Sleeping with her, doing that shady business deal, that, that actually seems like a lot of fun. And if I seek God's glory, it isn't going to be as fun. But here's the good news. When we seek God's glory in all that we do, he maximizes our joy. Listen to this. Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You, you make known to me the next thing, God, and in walking into that next thing, Lord, there is fullness of joy in your presence in that. Fullness, not partial joy, not a little bit of joy, fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so as we, we close, we come to take communion. Maybe there's a couple ways that you would respond. One of them is maybe you have never come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you're asking, what do I do next? The next most God-honoring, God-glorifying thing you could do is to confess and believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you would know what is next. And the way that you are transformed is by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So maybe that's what you would do today. Maybe some of us here today, our next most God glorifying response would be in repentance. 
Maybe we've been living for ourselves and we've not been living for the glory of God. And the next most God-honoring, God-glorifying thing you can do is to repent of that and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I've been living for me. I've been living for this or that or any other secondary thing. And Lord, I don't want to do that anymore. And that it would be his kindness that would turn you around and put you back to face his glory. And then maybe you would respond by saying, Lord, here I am. Wherever you are leading that is the most glorifying thing to you, here I am. Take me. Use me. Whatever it looks like, here I am. Let's pray. Lord, I give you thanks for this congregation. I give thanks for this people. Lord, I give thanks for this building. But Lord, we are far from the finish line. You have a race marked out for this church and you have a race marked out for each of our lives. And so God, I pray that every one of us would take the next most God glorifying step we can, whatever that looks like, whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever it is that we do. Lord, I pray that what we do next is the most God glorifying thing we can do. We love you and we pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.